0: Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1? We'll be reading from verses 12 and 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to grab a a Bible from in front of you. You can find this passage on page 836. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Hear the word of our God. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we draw near to you. This morning, and we worship you. You are a good and gracious God, and you have shown perfect, steadfast love for generation and generation. And we have seen it exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come, Son of God, Son of man. And we worship you with glad hearts this morning, for there is none like Christ Jesus. We praise you for his humility. He stepped down into the Jordan River and he took upon himself the baptism of John. We thank you for his glory and his might this morning, the conqueror of our sins and our doubts and our fears. No, Father, this morning as we draw near to your word, as we look into it, we desire that you would open wide our hearts Give us new affections that we might see Jesus and that we might love Him and that we might glorify His name. We pray that you would give us faith this morning, that by your word and through its working and the accompaniment of the Spirit, that you would create faith in us, that we would entrust ourselves to this Son who goes out into the wilderness and obeys your word. Oh, Father, we pray work in our hearts this morning. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. At the very core of Christian proclamation and mission is the saving message of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul proclaims in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And even the very name given the incarnate Son of God reveals His saving significance for mankind. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And those of us who have tasted this salvation, as those who have been ushered into the congregation of the redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have learned to sing the ancient songs of salvation. And Moses leads us in confession this morning. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And David's many songs of salvation rise up in our hearts with much joy. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And these old songs of salvation form the the bedrock of comfort in our hearts. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. And these songs of salvation press upon us the urgency of this gospel message. Isaiah sings piercing songs. He records the word of the Lord. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And as we come to the Gospel of Mark this morning, this is what Mark's Gospel is all about. Mark, through the story of Jesus, unfolds God's gracious and redemptive acts of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 1 sets the trajectory for Mark's whole Gospel. Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as we peer into these pages, we see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is both the herald of good news... He boldly preaches the now time of of salvation. He says the time is fulfilled and the, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see in the pages of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus himself is the very substance of salvation. He is God's portion of salvation for sinful man. And Jesus beckons and he calls sinners to himself throughout the Gospel story saying, follow me. And as we move slowly through chapter 1, and we're moving slowly with a purpose, because in chapter 1, Mark carefully lays the foundation for his story. He is setting a pattern. He is directing the, their trajectory. And in chapter 1, we begin, we begin to get hints about this salvation and what this salvation means for sinful people like us. So Mark begins by quoting from Isaiah and Malachi. Salvation is about the coming of God to his people. God is going to draw near. And we hear John's preaching in the wilderness. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark tells us this God is going to come. He is the mighty one and he's going to triumph over his enemies. He's going to subdue them all. And then we see Jesus, the Son of God, descend into the Jordan River and receive the baptism of John. And Mark begins to teach us. God comes to bear the sinful yoke of his people so that forgiveness might flow out towards them. And we cannot ignore the supernatural events in chapter 1. The rending of the heavens, the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus, and the booming voice from heaven. And Mark here presents to us the Spirit-filled, beloved Son who will accomplish salvation for the people of God. And this carefully written introduction by Mark answers many of our questions about salvation. Who initiates salvation? Salvation. God does. Who brings salvation? God in Christ. What is this salvation? Well, it consists of the forgiveness of sins, the dawn of the kingdom, new creation, the trampling of God's enemies, the time of the Spirit of God. And what is it happening in the now time, in the present, in the days of Jesus, even right now? And who is this salvation for? Well, it's for sinners like you and like me. And we can ask one more question this morning. How? How will the Spirit-filled, beloved Son bring salvation? How will God triumph over all of His enemies? How will God's people find the forgiveness of sins and even righteousness in the sight of their God? Mark provides us an answer in verses 12 in 13, he directs our attention. The text reads, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So as we look into God's Word this morning, verses 12 and 13, our aim is, is rather simple. We want to gain a big picture of Jesus' obedience in the wilderness, why it matters, what's going on here. And as we look into verses 12 and 13, we see that, that Mark's account of this temptation is frustratingly brief. We only get two short verses. Mark doesn't tell us about the, the rumblings and the hunger that's going on in Jesus' stomach after fasting for 40 days. He doesn't present the dramatic back and forth between Jesus and the tempter. He doesn't tell us about the dramatic conclusion when Jesus rises up in the face of Satan and says, Be gone, Satan. Mark, as usual, is brief and he's right to the point. Will God's Son remain steadfast to his purpose? Will he remain strong in the face of temptation? Will he persevere in the wilderness? Can he stand tall against the adversary? And what we desperately need this morning, what humanity aches for, what creation seeks, is the obedient Son of God. And this is the good news that Mark presents before us this morning. The Son of God has come. And he has perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. He has withstood every temptation. He has triumphed over the evil one. And the kingdom of God comes powerfully because of his obedience. The force of this assertion, the force of verses 12 and 13, however, by themselves, might not land on us this morning with a lot of weight. We want to work this morning to have verses... 12 and 13, land on us like a ton of bricks with weight and significance. When you go to a jewelry store, a jeweler will carefully place a diamond upon black velvet. And why does the jeweler do this? Well, he does it to, to highlight the beauty, the sparkle, the clarity of the, the rock. The black provides a, a contrast and the, the diamond shines forth. And so this morning, what our plan is, is to place the obedience of the Son of God in the wilderness against the black backdrop of human sin and failure. And when we make this comparison between the Lord Jesus and our human failure, the good news of the gospel falls upon us with incredible weight. It shines forth as precious good news. The glory of God shines forth. And this... Velvet Backdrop can be told as a story about three sons. Adam, Israel, Solomon, and a father. And there's a distinct narrative arc in this story. It resembles the parable of the prodigal son. There is a rich and generous father. He's not afraid to lavish good gifts upon his children. And then there is a foolish and treacherous son, The son prizes the father's gifts and his own foolish ego above his father and his father's love and his father's glory. And then there is the inevitable third element of the story, the ruin of the treacherous and foolish son. So son number one, we can begin with Adam. And Adam's story begins with great promise. The generosity and the goodness of the father is put on full display. The father withholds no good thing from his son. Trees full of fruit, beauty of every kind, gold and riches. And the father is not aloof from his son, but he is near his son. These are not gifts of bribery, but he pays careful attention to his son's needs. The father draws near and assesses his son and he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. So the Lord draws near and he carefully crafts a, a helpmeet suited to his son's needs. And the extravagance of the father only increases in the creation account. Adam is not only intended to enjoy God's good creation, but he is to have the, the run of it all. The father hands the keys of creation into his son's hands. It's like a father drawing near to his son. Here's the keys to the brand new car. Take it. Drive it. Psalm 8 celebrates the father's generosity towards his son. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. And while the father is incredibly generous, Adam is equal parts foolish. The goodness of God surrounds Adam. It hounds him. He cannot escape it. He cannot ignore it. Every sense, touch, taste, sight, sound, smell testifies to the loving care of the father towards his son. Adam's pockets are full His stomach is satisfied. He has the best job, and he comes home to a beautiful wife. What more could you want? But when the time of testing draws near, when the tempter shows up in the garden, Adam fails. He does not remain true to the word of God, but he he perverts it. And he fails because his heart is not united in love towards his father. He doesn't prize his father supremely. And the ruin of Adam's folly is so great. The living creature is subjected to death. Adam goes from riches to rags. He goes from fullness to emptiness, from the land of promise to a land of wandering and curse. Son number two, Israel. The story of the second son begins with a a, a distinctly different note. We don't meet this son in a beautiful garden surrounded by beautiful trees full of food and wealth. Rather, we find the son of God in great trouble. The son is groaning under the great weight of slavery. He's oppressed and beaten down. And while the circumstances of the son are so different, the character and love of the father remains exactly the same. And the father comes to his son's aid, he hears his groaning and his heart burns with love towards his son. Exodus chapter 4, verse 32, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And In the Exodus story, the father's mighty acts of redemption are put on full display. Plague after plague is poured out on the Egyptians. The Lord splits the sea so that his son might walk on dry ground. And he leads them through the wilderness by his very presence. And he sustains their lives with bread from heaven and water from rocks. And he promises them a, a land flowing with milk and honey. He leads them on a path to garden restored. And the Father's love is clear and it's plain. Israel saw its plagues, they, they saw it as they walked on the ground through the sea, walls of water on each side. They tasted it as they ate manna from heaven and drank water from their walk. Yet despite the tangibility of God's love, so tangible bread, water, split seas, defeated enemies, the foolishness of the sun prevails. He will not heed his father's instructions. And Moses comes along in the book of Deuteronomy before he dies and he indicts the Son of God. He says, You are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. And Moses says, This is not a new thing going on in your hearts. He goes on to say, From the day you came out of the land of Egypt, until you've come to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Israel is a foolish and rebellious son. And This brings us to a third son. The father's promises are unrelenting in the story of sonship. He does not give up. Meant by human sin and rebellion, the father continues to pour out love and mercy towards his son. And as we move through the series of sons, we meet a man by the name of Solomon. He's a son of David, and even more than this, he is a son of promise. God's good word finds him out and narrows in upon him, and the promise falls upon his shoulders. 2 Samuel 7, God addresses this son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And as we move through Solomon's life, we see the hand of the generous father working. Solomon has more than anyone else. His barns are full. His bank is overflowing. His knowledge and wisdom exceeds all others. First Kings chapter 10 says, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God, which God had put in his mind. And so we see in Solomon a man of riches, a man of wisdom, a man who the whole world sought. The nations were streaming into Jerusalem. And here the Father's generosity is put on full display. We begin to think, Surely this son, this Solomon, would be different than all the other sons that have come before. Surely he would not grumble in the wilderness like the Son of God, Israel. Surely he would be different than Adam in the garden. Surely he would keep God's good word. And we hear Solomon's preaching in the book of Proverbs. He says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And he warns, The lips of the forbidden woman drips honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Keep your way from her, and do not go near the door of her house. But there is deep, deep folly in the heart of Solomon. I know it sounds, but King Solomon loved many foreign women. Solomon did not heed his own preaching, his own proverbs. He did not keep far from the adulteress, but he flung wide the door of his own house to the forbidden woman, and he opened the door of his heart to the forbidden woman. And Solomon experienced the own warnings of his preaching. Her house sinks down to death in her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the path of Life. Everything, everything depends upon the obedience of the Son. And in the story of the three sons, we see failure and failure and failure. Adam does not stand tall against temptation in the garden. He does not hold fast the good word of God. Israel saw the great deeds of redemption with their own eyes. But Israel's worship is corrupted by their stubborn and rebellious hearts. And Solomon and all his glory and wisdom is destroyed through his many lusts and desires. And just like in the parable of the prodigal son, we find these sons hungry and destitute and far from their father. And this is the story of humanity. This is, this is our story. We're just like Adam and Israel and Solomon. A story in which we take for granted our father we despise him. We prefer his gifts over his person. We value not his care or his love or his glory. And then we leave him, insisting on our own way, abusing his good gifts that he gave to us. Only to find ourselves living east of Eden, dying in the wilderness, and keeping company with a forbidden woman whose path leads to death. And while we thought this way would lead us to happiness and delight, we find that our stomachs are empty and we are far from our loving Father. We look at the pigs, oh, that I could eat their pods. But if we know the parable of the prodigal son this morning, we know that this isn't the end of the story. Rather, there's hope and even redemption in the parable And so where do we find hope in this story of the three sons? We don't find hope in ourselves. We don't find hope in Adam or Israel or Solomon. We find hope in another son, a son who will remain obedient, a son who will stand tall against temptation. In the Old Testament scriptures, they whisper his name in hint of him. Isaiah chapter 11 Paints a beautiful portrait of the coming Son of God. Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. and a little child shall lead them on. What is Isaiah saying? Everything, everything depends upon the obedient son of God. And the good news of the gospel this morning is that there is an obedient son and that the obedient son has come and Mark brings him near to our ears and to our hearts this morning. He tells us, he preaches to us. Verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark says, Behold the obedient Son. And against the black velvet of the three sons, the glory and the beauty and the worth and the significance of Jesus Christ stands out. Adam in the garden, he let go of the good word of God. He did not cling grasply to it. He trusted in his own wisdom. He was deceived. But the son of God, he held fast to the word of God. And in the face of temptation, he cried out, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Israel grew discontent with their father. They saw his great acts of redemption, And they didn't care for his love or his glory or his worth. Rather, they were ruled by the cravings in their stomachs. They cried out in hunger. Oh, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Behold the Son of God. Though the Son of God had no food in his belly, though he suffered great hunger, Jesus Christ satisfied himself with greater pleasure. He sung in his heart in the wilderness, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Solomon. The promise of God narrowed in upon him. God poured wisdom into his heart, and he taught wisdom. He said, A wise son heeds his father's discipline, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. He taught, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. In Solomon's own words, as he taught, his son proved his own hypocrisy his own deceitful heart, his own folly. But these Proverbs show forth the glory of the Son because the Son of God came and he perfectly exemplifies all the Proverbs. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And here in the wilderness as he's being tempted, we see the Son who brings great joy to his Father. A Son who heeds his Father's discipline. A wise Son heeds his Father's discipline discipline. A wise son brings joy to his father. And imagine the joy and delight of the Father as he looked down upon his son, enduring temptation, standing fast to, against the tempter. Everything depends upon the obedience of the Son. And we can close this morning with a, a story, and we can press the truth of this on our hearts through this story. New Year's Day 1936, J. Gresham Machen lays dying in a hospital bed in Bismarck, North Dakota. Machen left his home of Pennsylvania and he, he traveled out west to lonely North Dakota to preach the gospel. And if you don't know Machen, Machen is an indisputable hero. He was a man. Of vision, he founded a seminary, which still stands today and still trains gospel ministers. He founded a denomination. He was a great scholar. He taught the New Testament. He was a man full of convictions in the face of rising modernism creeping into the church. Rising unbelief, he upheld the truthfulness of the scriptures, the inerrancy, the authority. He taught on the virgin birth, the resurrection of the body. He upheld the supernatural. Machen's obituary spoke of his unflagging zeal for the truth. It's probably one of the best obituaries you can read. It goes to say, Those who attempted to answer him were thrown back like waves that beat against an eternal rock. He stood for those things through thick and thin, through the storms of persecution, and amid the great efforts that were made to stop him. Machen was a great man. He was a hero, a great teacher of the Bible, full of wisdom. But Machen was still a man. And now New Year's Day, 1936, it's time for Machen to go the way that every man must go. He must die. So we can ask, we can examine Machen's life. What was this scholar of the Bible hoping in as he entered into eternity? Where was his faith as he drew near to God? And what gave this man peace in the valley of the shadow of death? The last words of Machen, known before his death, were sent to a friend and fellow colleague, John Murray. He wrote in a telegram I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And there's so much to learn from Machen's words this morning. We need to learn how to die. It's one of the most important things you can do. And, and Machen did not draw near to death with a vague hope. His hope had certainty, it was defined, it was particular. He said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. And there's great beauty in Machen's words as well. The beauty of this statement is that Machen grasped hold of the whole gospel. Machen knew that he was a sinner and that he desperately needed forgiveness. He banked upon the truth of Psalm 103. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But Machen knew he needed something more than just the forgiveness of sins. He knew that there was more to the gospel than just this. He needed the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to his own account. He knew that he needed the obedient son who went out into the wilderness and who remained remained fast and true to the word of God. He knew he needed that son's obedience credited to his account. So this morning I invite you to consider the gospel as a, a great drama. And in this great drama of the gospel, we are ushered into the presence of God. And as we're ushered into His throne room, we are stunned by His blazing beauty and glory. Utter holiness. Purity so bright and, and pure that we cannot gaze upon Him. And as we're in His presence, our, our eyes look down. And we look down upon ourselves. And we click, we. Quickly realize how different we are from this God. This God is holy and we are unholy. He is pure and we are impure. Our clothes, we look down at them, they're stained and they're stinking. They're full of filth and wrath. The guilt of sins hangs all over us and we're undone in the sight of this holy God. And the words of Isaiah from Isaiah 6 shoot into our minds Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But this is a drama about the gospel, and the word of the gospel sounds. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God appears, and he draws near to us in our need. And he comes to us and he graciously removes our dirty and stained clothes. He removes our stench and our filth, our guilt. And he takes our clothes in his arms and he walks away. He goes to the cross. And there our stains, our guilt, our clothes are forever destroyed. The forgiveness of sins. Praise be to God. But we're still in the presence of the holy God. He is pure and holy. And his holiness is is penetrating. And again, we we look down at ourselves, but now we're, we're naked and we're exposed in the sight of God. And the questions run through our minds. What will gain me approval in the sight of this holy God? What will give me acceptance before him? But the word of the gospel sounds once again... And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, appears and he draws near to us. In this time, he removes his own robes and he places them upon us. He wraps us up in his own righteousness. He clothes us in his good deeds. His obedience covers our nakedness. His faithfulness surrounds us. And the best of all, this holy and pure God sitting upon his throne looks upon us. And he's pleased and he's delighted in what he sees. We found his acceptance in the clothing of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Machen's soul clung to in death. This is what he meant when he wrote to John Murray. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And this is what the son of God achieved in the wilderness for us. This is what he was up to. We can say this morning, everything, absolutely everything depends upon the obedience of the Son. And the good word of the gospel sounds this morning. Christ is obedient for you. Christ is obedient for you. So believe the gospel this morning. Entrust yourself to this Son. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice this morning in your great gospel, and it is a great gospel. It is good news to our souls. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has carried our sins far away, never to be seen again. Jesus Christ has appeared, and he has clothed us with with his own righteousness, and now we stand acceptable in your sight. Oh, Father, would you work in our hearts this morning by your Spirit and your Word. Give us faith in the Son today. Oh, Father, we pray, create faith this morning. Where there is no faith, speak faith, we pray. Oh, God, give us assurance now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. this morning we get to celebrate